Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, We'll begin the conversation with Representative Carolyn Bordeaux, Democrat from Georgia's 7th Congressional District. She was part of a group of 10 House Democrats who recently negotiated an agreement with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for a firm deadline of September 27th to have a vote on the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure bill. We'll ask her about that negotiation why she thought it was important, and what she's looking for in the more expansive and uh, expensive reconciliation bill now being drafted. Then we'll hit the road with Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith and our Colorado Fiscal Lookout Brian Carter. We'll hear about a series of events that, uh, that they conducted in Colorado last week including a budget uh, choice exercise with a group of college students at Colorado State University and a presentation Phil made to the Denver Rotary Club. And then finally, we'll turn back to Washington where last week the Social Security and Medicare trustees issued their 2021 report on the financial conditions of uh, those two important programs. Uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson will uh, join me to assess the uh, trustees' report. And a spoiler alert on that, politicians are ignoring some big problems with both programs. Uh, cash flows are negative, trust fund balances are falling, and the projections might well be optimistic. And now let's get to our first guest, uh, Representative Carolyn Bordeaux. Before her election to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, Representative Bordeaux was a professor of public management and policy at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. And she served in a number of public service roles during her career. She, in, in Congress, she serves on the House Small Business Committee and the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And she's a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus and the Blue Dog Coalition, where she chairs the Task Force on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. Congresswoman Bordeaux, welcome back to Facing the Future. Good to be here. Well, you have certainly been uh, leading a, an exciting legislative life since we <laughs> last spoke. Um, there are couple of bills in, uh, in play. Uh, one is the bipartisan physical infrastructure bill uh, that passed the Senate. And then we're looking 
ahead to a uh, reconciliation bill, uh, a much bigger bill uh, that will be coming up when Congress comes back. So I, I wanted to just sort of go back a little bit to that, uh, the bipartisan bill, because you were involved in a, a group of, of 10 members that were urging a, uh, a, a quicker, a, a vote on that sooner rather than later when it comes over to the House, where, where right. it is now. And, you know, the there was a lot of negotiating with the Speaker and the Progressive Caucus about the timing uh, of these things relative to the reconciliation bill. Uh, where did things end up? Well, let me just back up a little bit because I think it helps provide some context. Um, I sit on the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans. And way back in, I think it was March or April, uh, we sat down and came up with a bipartisan infrastructure framework. And this is on the House side. Um, and we uh, handed that off to the Senate, and that was largely the framework that they then adopted. Uh, it passed the Senate by 69 to 30. They sent it back to the House, and so just the amount of effort and work uh, that has gone into that bill, which is very, very important for people in the 7th District, very important for people in the country, it addresses uh, congestion, climate change, uh, jobs, uh, as well as just mobility uh, around the community. And so I did feel a really deep and continue to feel a deep sense of commitment to that legislation um, that I was very much a part of developing. So uh, what happened was we uh, had a discussion about how to proceed and uh, just wanted to tell everybody this is how legislative processes work. Uh, the same things happen at the state level but uh, doesn't necessarily play out on CNN quite in the same way as it does at the national level. And uh, what we did was we came to an agreement that we would take up that bipartisan bill on September 27th, and we actually got it on the calendar to be brought to the floor on that day. And simultaneously, but not uh, linked, we would start taking up the budget resolution, the reconciliation, and this larger package uh, of priorities that the president is putting forward. In, and um, in that, uh, I, I, am, I imagine that there was, well, let me just go back. You, you mentioned how it came together through the Problem Solvers Caucus. There was this, this subset of 10 uh, that, that you were a part of. How did that uh, come about? Well, a lot of it came out of the Problem Solvers Caucus. A lot of us are participants there. And, um, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is something that is, is very popular, something that is very deeply, deeply needed. Um, so that is something we all just have a really serious commitment to. And one of the concerns was that uh, some members of our party were saying they didn't want to vote on that bill until they got everything they wanted in the reconciliation bill. Now, uh, which is this bigger package that everybody's working on. Now, now that big package has a lot in it, uh, any one of which would be a signature accomplishment for any administration. Uh, it's everything from paid family medical leave to immigration to uh, climate change, tax credits, childcare, college, healthcare, and that's going to take some time to get right and to really put those pieces together in a way that makes sense. And it is my concern, which was shared by the others who signed on to that letter, that you know, if we delay until we get all of that right or we get that into a good place, um, the, the coalition around it will fall apart. 
And we'd like to try to keep that together, get that done, take the win. It's very, very popular. It's something that people love. In my district, when I tell them I worked on this bipartisan bill, they look at me and say, oh my goodness, you have given me hope that both parties can work together to accomplish something for the country. Um, and so we'd like to get that done um, and then move on to the next thing. And uh, there are lots of priorities that I have, as well as all of my colleagues have uh, in this larger package. Um, but we want to make sure that we do that in a way that's responsible. Well, I want to bring Phil into the conversation, but I, ha I have to say a group of uh, 10 House members uh, sticking together with the, the uh, their own, you know, the a speaker of their own party wanting maybe to do something else. That, that takes a lot of guts. <laughs> I have to I have to give you guys a lot of credit. I give the speaker credit too for yeah. uh, for working it out. Uh, that is how the the legislative process works. And uh, That's right. yeah. so, Phil, you want to jump in here? Absolutely. Thank you, Congresswoman. I'm coming to you today from Colorado and uh, doing our budget exercise at Colorado State University uh, tomorrow out here. And so I have the next generation on my mind. <clears throat> and so. Uh, this bipartisan bill that you've been working on uh, reminds me of how so many things that are done in Washington disproportionately affect young people. And uh, do we need to do a better job at educating young people about federal budget policy? And, you know, in your mind, what are some of the things maybe we could do to to engage that next generation? Because a lot of the things that the, the big plans you're working on will really make a, a huge difference. Some of the things, the decisions that Congress is making, and then more importantly, some of the decisions Congress is failing to make as it relates to the budget disproportionately affects young people. Do you agree? All of it does. You are exactly right. And my career prior to running for Congress was very much involved with trying to get young people to understand uh, fiscal policy, budget policy, what those trade-offs look like, um, why we have to make them. And uh, I, I do think we have a lot to do to educate young people. They come in, I love them. They, they make up the heart and soul of uh, my, my office and the campaigns I've run. Um, but you know, understanding that when you choose one thing, it precludes choosing something else is, is really, you, know, you have to work with people on that and to, to understand the idea around trade-offs. And one of the challenges in Washington right now is, you know, we don't have a balanced budget amendment. We don't have any kind of trade-off sense that we are making these kinds of trade-offs and trade-offs have to be made. And it's very distinct from the state level where of course I cut my teeth as a budget director in the Senate uh, during the great recession and have worked on state and local finance for a long, long time. And there people really do, you get that deep sense of trade-off. You know, if you're going to do this, then you can't do that. Um, and I think at the federal level, a lot of that has been lost, and we need to restore that. Yeah, I think that uh, we're, we're going to get a grand exercise in that when, when you come back on the reconciliation bill, this, this next bill. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me the budget resolution authorized a bill uh, up to $3.5 to be offset by $1.75 trillion. Now, that doesn't mean that all of that has to be spent or all of that has right. to be raised and offset. It's That's just what is authorized in the budget resolution. What you will have to do now um, is actually write the bill. And it seems to me that uh, <laughs> that that's going to make the bipartisan infrastructure bill almost look simple <laughs> by comparison. But right. so I wanted to ask you, what are your priorities? Um, you know, if you were writing that bill, 
that, that, that you hope for in the reconciliation bill? So I think you're exactly right. And I just stood up and did a town hall uh, with this. And of course, after the, the storm of, uh, of the negotiation uh, that we had over the budget resolution and the bipartisan bill. And I just said, look, my, my constituents, they are all you know, middle-class, pragmatic, largely parents of children. You know, They want good things for their kids. They know we have huge needs, but they're very practical and recognize that you have to pay for things. You've got to offset things. So I was like, look, you know, there are uh, agreements. There are all sorts of places where we can, you know, find ways to pay for these bills, but it's going to be very challenging to do all of the priorities that we have in here. Um, the child tax credit alone, if we were to extend that over the full 10 year period is $1.1 trillion. And that eats up that uh, 3.5 trillion, assuming we can pay for it um, really quickly. Um, and just one of the very good things that came out of this negotiation that we had was one, I was able to have a lot of conversations with the Biden administration, and they very much reiterated uh, their uh, commitment to, you know, paying for the whole bill and trying to make sure that we scale things appropriately so that we can pay for it. Additionally, we had an agreement to I guess the one way to characterize it, pre-conference this bill. So work with the Senate at the same time uh, as the House develops this bill. And so I think that, you know, getting that date certain on the bipartisan bill, plus having this commitment to working in tandem with the Senate, um, I think will help us make more deliberative and thoughtful policy as we sort through uh, that legislation. But things that are key priorities for me are things like healthcare uh, expansion. I ran on affordable quality healthcare and a piece of that is Medicaid expansion. Georgia is one of uh, 12, 13 states that has not expanded Medicaid and to terrible both human cost as well as fiscal cost. Uh, we pay very high insurance premiums in part because we have huge uncompensated care uh, in our community uh, and obviously have lots of people who are you know, working people or people who want to work who who only have health care through the emergency room and so really don't get good health care, often pay a very, very steep price in terms of their health uh, uh, for that that failure to expand Medicaid. So that's it. That's a huge one. I'm leading the way in the House on that piece of legislation. Uh, we also pay very high insurance premiums. And so one of the really important provisions in the American Rescue Plan was um, the, the funding to help bring down the cost of health insurance premiums for many, many people in the district, not just uh, low income, but many middle class families. Phil, you want to jump in? Sure. September is a crazy month with deadlines and all sorts of budgetary policy coming to a head at once. And we're hearing a little bit more about the debt ceiling. And this one scares us uh, because uh, it's not what a lot of people think. You know, a lot of people think, oh, this is, you're putting a limit on your credit card spend, and that's a fiscally responsible thing to do. Uh, in many ways, we're actually threatening uh, our economic future when we talk about the debt limit. Uh, do you agree? Uh, yes, I do. And we need to get that done and get that taken care of, because what that means is the, the federal government can no longer pay its bills, which threatens the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Um, so uh, I, I think we're going to get this done. We have to be very steady, very straightforward, very calm. 
Um, I would imagine a lot of this is going to spill over later into the fall, uh, but we just have to be very patient with the process uh, and work our way through each of these votes that's going to be coming up. Do you think the uh, the the group of ten? I don't know whether you ever took on a, a name. <laughs> but yeah. the, 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 is this experience uh, encourage you to to um, you know stick with this group and maybe do some more bipartisan well, bipartisan initiatives? I, I hope we can do more bipartisan initiatives, and I I am very hopeful that there are a number of other policies. As I did this, uh, it did help build some relationships uh, both across the aisle, but also within my own party and force us to think creatively about uh, ways that we can have a bigger coalition. Let me also say, yeah, there was a group of nine who signed the letter, 10, one more kind of joined in, um, but we were reflective of a bigger coalition uh, that, that was behind that. Um, a lot of us are also in the Blue Dogs Caucus, which and cares about fiscal responsibility is one of its primary um, focuses. And so we are definitely continuing to have conversations uh, with that caucus and with that actually quite large group of people who are concerned about, you know, we want to accomplish a lot of these priorities. There is a lot of need. We need to address climate change. We need to address the deep income inequality in this country, but we have to do it in a way that is responsible, that doesn't tank the federal budget, that doesn't wreck our economy going forward. And so um, we have really solidified uh, a bit and are having, you know, a lot more meetings to try to be very clear and articulate our priorities as we go forward. We've uh, only got about a minute left, but I was, um, you know, one of the things that we like to do is 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 have bipartisan um, meetings, and uh, and you know, Phil being out in Colorado is symbolic of the fact that we like to do stuff in the field. And I know we're doing a lot of stuff by Zoom these days, but I'd really like to to do some bipartisan forums that would have a, a, a member of the House, uh, a Republican and a Democrat, and maybe do a, like a home and home series, uh, you know, in a, at an academic place in, oh, Georgia, say, and then another one in, uh, <laughs> in a, a, a state with a Republican representative. Because I find the public really appreciates that sort of, um, that sort of bipartisanship. And I, I I know it's difficult in Washington and difficult to stick together, but from my perspective, I think Phil probably uh, has the same perspective. The public really does like to see Democrats and Republicans working together on issues that they care about. I, I so agree. It is one of the reasons that bipartisan infrastructure bill is, is important. It's not just important because it provides good policy for our community, but just symbolically that we can work together to solve the problems for people. Uh, again, I, I go back to these multiple uh, town halls I've had where I talk about that process and people go, oh, you have given me such hope for the country uh, that you all were able to work together on this bill. So I would love to have more conversations like that in the future. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I really appreciate your taking time. I know your schedule is very, very busy, um, but we thank you for joining us and uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
And uh, we're going to have a grassroots segment here. I'm going to be talking with Brian Carter uh, out in Colorado, who is one of our fiscal lookouts. And he is uh, hosting Phil Smith, our national field director, uh, who's in Colorado doing a series of events this week. And uh, Brian and Phil, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, sir. Brian, um, you have a, a key role with, uh, with uh, the Concord Coalition. Um, collectively with others, we, we uh, designate as fiscal lookouts. And the reason is that, you know, we always emphasize an outside the beltway, you know, grassroots public education approach to fiscal policy. Um, just briefly, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and why you got involved in this uh, fiscal lookout program. You bet, Bob. Thanks. Uh, so uh, I am the, the fiscal lookout for Colorado, and uh, I've followed Concord Coalition since about 2004. And uh, I met Phil probably about 2005 or six. Um, I got involved because uh, this topic really, really matters. And in my day job, I work in sales, uh, entire sales specifically. And um, um, but this is a topic that is uh, uh has mattered to me for, for quite a while. Um, I read uh, Mr. Peterson's book, Running on Empty, back when, uh, when that was published. And it kind of uh, sent me on the journey of, of digging into this issue. And uh, I became convinced that whatever people's uh, primary uh, policy concerns are, at some point, that concern probably relates to money. And so as a result, this, this, topic, um, this topic has a um, very... Um, foundational or primordial importance because while we can disagree on a lot of other things uh whatever we all care about it is going to come back to money at some point and so i saw it as a as a topic that can unite people i saw it as a topic that can um be a way to to bring people together and we need that more than ever um and as a father of three kids um, I'm very, very concerned about the legacy that we're leaving and the problems that we're going to be leaving to, to that generation. Yeah, I think that that's a motivation for a lot of people. I, I, I hear that a lot. And, and Phil, uh, just uh, briefly, what are the, some of the events that you're doing out in Colorado? Well, uh, Brian Carter has put together one heck of a schedule for us this week, and uh, Brian and I spoke to the Rotary Club of Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, yesterday, and then last night, uh, Brian worked hand-in-hand -hand with a professor at uh, Colorado State University uh, to host a budget exercise. This is, of course, our interactive uh, budget exercise called Principles and Priorities, and uh, we had uh, students and uh, members of the community show up and uh, attempt to put together a 10-year federal budget. And they did a great job. Uh, in fact, uh, the savings that we got last night uh, approached almost $5 trillion over the next 10 years. So it's always interesting to see uh, people outside the, the Beltway come in and uh, try to do what Congress and the president has have failed to do you know, in recent years. And then today, Brian and I are headed down to Denver uh, for a really large uh, Rotary Club as well. This is the big Rotary Club uh, down in Denver in downtown today. And so uh, it will be an in-person event, uh, as was our event last night. So uh, this is kind of a first for the Concord Coalition. We've been doing all virtual events up until this week. So it's been interesting to be back in people's physical presence again. Yeah, I, uh, I think that that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, 
You know, it's funny, you you mentioned, uh, Phil, that uh, Brian had put together a great schedule. One of the things that, that has always astounded me is the uh, latent organizational talents of uh, people who get into this and suddenly start scheduling Rotary Clubs and and uh, and media events and things like that. They they never knew that they had such talent. <laughs> well, and let me tell you, Brian is tenacious. He will not take no for an answer. No matter how many times uh, he gets the setback, he just keeps bouncing back. Uh, and I think, uh, for for example, the event we had last night on campus, uh, he put forth about three times uh, the work in terms of outreach and and letting people know needed lesson, which, which is what you have to do nowadays, right? If you're going to try to do an in-person event and then reassure people it's going to be safe and masks are going to be worn and all that sort of stuff. So, so uh, uh, Brian is is one of our best. Well, let me uh, let me get both of you talking about kind of the substance. I mean, what. What kind of uh, questions do you get? Uh, what what came up at the event last night or at Fort Collins? Just kind of in a general sense, Brian. Let me begin with you on that. Sure, it was uh, it was really encouraging. We had a, a young man come into the into the meeting hall, um, and he said, "I'm here for the budget event." And we all introduced ourselves, and then he and we just asked, "So, what brought you out tonight?" And just without hesitation, he said, I think this is a really important issue. Uh, we have a really big problem and I want to learn more about it. And that was that was remarkable for a freshman in college to have clarity on the fact that we're on an unsustainable path. And so I, I just was <laughs> I was impressed and delighted to see that that clarity of thought. Um, and um, and then some of the other students that came, you could you could see that there was this kind of intuitive sense that something's off like they've heard enough to know something's off but when we got into the 50 some odd different choices that you make I think everyone really appreciated how hard it is to to change like <laughs> they're we're, we're we're out of the land of easy choices and it was it was hard but it was good to see them wrestle with it and so uh, I was very encouraged that these were 19, 20, 21 year olds, and they they just grabbed hold of the challenge. And um, there were some people that made no bones about the fact that they were from one end of the political spectrum and unapologetic and other folks from the other end. But as we went through topic after topic and we're weighing pros and cons, you could see you could see the um, the migration from uh, kind of surface level political talking points to, oh, wow, if you do that, then this would happen. Hmm. I don't know what I think about that. And that's really what we want to see happen is for folks to move beyond the platitudes because platitudes aren't going to solve this problem. Phil, did you, did you see people in their groups making compromises or making agreeing to things that they might not have agreed to before they started the exercise? Absolutely. In fact, in Congress, you know, this term of a political scientist call it log rolling. And uh, and we did see some log rolling occurring uh, last night at Colorado State. Uh, you could see uh, students that uh, might be on the fence on one issue, willing to give in on one side or the other to make sure that an issue they felt passionately about uh, would would pass. And, and one of the themes that I've seen come up at both our civic club presentations and on campus is uh, people talking about the need uh, to curb long-term healthcare costs. 
uh, that has come up over and over again. I think, you know, one of the things that COVID has done, it's exposed a lot of things in our society. And obviously we've had huge costs associated with COVID, but once the costs of COVID start to subside and have a lesser effect on the deficit, um, it's interesting to see people see these trends and they, they were asking, you know, what, well, what's causing, why do we have emergency level deficits, you know, seven or eight years from now without an emergency? And, and it all it almost always comes back to healthcare and the need to do that. So we had a lot of passionate debate at the Rotary Club. Uh, in fact, I received an email from one of the Rotary Club officers last night who uh, did a very detailed recounting of our chart talk presentation. <laughs> I mean, it was almost verbatim. And, um, and in it, he focused a lot on the Q&A session, which also talked a lot about the need to curb long-term healthcare costs. Well, what, what were some of the questions that uh, you got? Well, they wanted to know what were some of the specific things that were driving the costs of healthcare. So one of the examples uh, that I used, um, and it's actually one of the examples in the exercise, and this came, this why it came up last night as well. Um, I'll give you a specific example. So, so like a lot, in a lot of our regions, like I live in Georgia, and we have a large hospital conglomerate that has come in and purchased uh, the hospital in my town, right? But it's also been purchasing doctor's offices. <laughs> and so you can have a procedure in a doctor's office that gets billed you know, at a cheaper rate than the hospital. And then the next year, that same doctor in that same building is owned by the hospital, but they then charge the government the hospital rate, right? So that's one example of, of where uh, we see these increased costs. And of course, we could do an entire session on healthcare alone. There's a lot. There's a lot of those that uh, mm -hmm. that, and they're in the weeds, and they're they're kind of difficult to pick up on, and they're also easily fought um, behind the scenes. Actually, that this particular example that you gave was one of the things I think we had a, a discussion with on this program a few months back with uh, Josh Gordon, who's our former policy director and is now with the health policy director at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, that, that, ending that or doing something about that is one of the choices that he came up with. So it's kind of interesting that there was some uh, interest in that uh, particular option um, bubbling up out there. Um, Brian, when you talk to people, are there, are there particular if they don't feel overwhelmed by the problem, so overwhelmed by it, are, are there things that people think we should be doing, we, that, that think that the Congress should be doing to close the gap? Well, um, I think that it is overwhelming. And I think the, the first layer of conversation that comes up is kind of a, uh, a generalized frustration that, um, personal hot button issues will be kind of the first things that bubble up. And I think it, it's almost like, okay, we have to, let's address those or let's, let's put those in their context because there's within a given person, including myself, there may be two or three topics that really seem to bother me, whether it's how much is spent on um, defense systems that people can't say exactly what does that do? Or they read an article that says the, the, the Pentagon wanted 20 and the congressman added you know, three times that because of all the different places where the parts are coming from and where the manufacturing is happening or uh, those kinds of things. So when once people, <clears throat> sorry, once people work through what I will call the hot button level of issues, then it starts to set in how big and structural the issue is. And um, and then it, it becomes a different kind of conversation. So I, I would say, generally speaking, it is like a two part conversation. The first part, dealing with whatever personal um, 
frustrations there might be on any given topic. And then you can actually get to the big issues. Yeah. What, what bugs me and then what bugs you? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think what our budget exercise does is just put some numbers on all of that. So it's kind of like if what bugs me and what bugs you uh, ends up to not a whole lot of savings, we got to look elsewhere. And that's, that's just the uh, important thing that we try to, to get across. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for this segment. Uh, Phil uh, and uh, Brian, thank you very much. Glad to know that you're on the road again, Phil, and that our fiscal lookout program is, is working well. Uh, this is your host, Bob Bixby on Facing the Future. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, I'm joined by Concord Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Chief Economist Steve Robinson. And what we're going to do is talk about the Social Security and Medicare Trustees Report. But we don't have a lot of time left in this show, so we're just going to do a lightning round and get back to some of the more in-depth analysis uh, later uh, Steve uh, is a former analyst with the Social Security Administration. What jumped out at you? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the headline that the, uh, the, the press picked up on, of course, is that the trust fund exhaustion date, which is the day in which uh, the, the combined Social Security and disability trust funds will be depleted, uh, went from 2034 to 2033, which is not a big change. I mean, if you look historically, uh, the trust fund uh, insolvency date or, or depletion date has ranged between 2030 and 2040, somewhere in that neighborhood, you know, basically for the past 20 or 30 years. I mean, that's sort of been always been the expected uh, range. And so that was sort of the news that, that the, uh, most of the press picked up on. I mean, one of the things that I found interesting uh, is that, that they actually undid something that they just did a year ago. Um, they um, the Social Security trustees had predicted that uh, the fertility rate, the number of, of children that the average woman would have over her lifetime, uh, was expected to be around 2.0. And last year, recognizing that birth rates had been falling continually since around 2007, uh, the trustees had voted to lower the long run assumption from 2.0 to 1.95, which is not a big change, but it recognizes the downside risk of continued low fertility. And in this year's report, surprisingly, they reversed themselves and they went from 1.95 back up to 2.0. Now, they made a number of changes in their methodology and they take longer to get to the 2.0 than they did previously in, in, in previous reports. But essentially, the, the long run assumption is still the same. And I, I found it interesting that they reversed course given the continuing evidence that, in fact, birth rates are falling and will likely continue to do so. There might even be an issue brief coming from you at some point <laughs> on that subject. That's a good foreshadowing, <laughs> yes. Uh. <laughs> well, uh, Tori, what jumped out at you? I think the thing that uh, was, was a big news for me is that the trustees are projecting that this year will be the first year that total uh, cost of the, the social security program, uh, both the retirement portion and disability portion will exceed um, 
what it'll generate in terms of revenue. And what does that mean? All of the, it means that all of the, the tax revenue that we collect, payroll tax revenue, the income taxes that people pay on their social security benefits, interest that the, the trust fund earns, all of that will be insufficient to pay, to pay benefits. And so how is, how is the federal government gonna fulfill that shortfall, fill that gap? Well, they're gonna have to start uh, liquidating the bonds that are held by the, the the trust fund, and what we know is what that really means is that we're going to need more general revenue transfers from Treasury uh, to Social Security, and they expect that effect to happen in perpetuity throughout the 75-year projection period. So um, it just means that Social Security is going to start taking a larger and larger share of general revenues. And it also means, you know, imagine this, this speeding locomotive that's on its way to crash into the side of a mountain, unless we figure out some way to, to slow down the, 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 the rate of speed of that, of that locomotive. I mean, we are on a, a glide path now to exhausting the, the, the finances of, of the social security trust fund, unless Congress do some, does something uh, to, to, to avert that, that disaster. Uh, and for more information about that, you can look at the issue brief we put out last week with the trustees report on Social Security and the budget. Exactly. Um, uh, what uh, I'm going to focus on is the Medicare portion of it. And it always astounds me, and people really need to know this, that basically the Medicare actuaries say, we've got a bunch of numbers here and projections, but we frankly don't think that they're achievable. In other words, there are, uh, there are provisions in current law that assume very, very um, ambitious cost-saving goals over the longer term. So if you look at, for example, the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, HI Medicare A, uh, it actually looks better when you look out 75 years. It is sustainable. But the reason is uh, that it makes such uh, restrictive assumptions about what Medicare is going to reimburse providers that it, uh, it, 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 it produces a, uh, an unrealistic scenario. Um, and it's easy for Congress to do that, to make the numbers look better, because they're not going to be around <laughs> in Congress anyway in those future years to try to make those, uh, those payment uh, uh, numbers stick. That, that we're talking about ratcheting down on reimbursements to doctors and hospitals to the point where they couldn't make a, a go by treating uh, Medicare patients. So they're, they're really, um, they're not just short-term problems in, in Medicare, but there are very substantial long-term estimates because of overly optimistic uh, uh, projections. And I, I should point out that the, uh, the trustees mention um, that their projections do not include anything about the potential effects of Medicare covering Adjuhelm, the new Alzheimer's drug that's been approved by the, uh, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago on Facing the Future. It, it could be a, a very substantial cost, but uh, right now Medicare hasn't made a coverage determination. And so the trustees aren't able to factor that into their projections, but that's another factor that could make these projections uh, a lot higher in the longer term than, than they actually report. As the trustees put it, uh, uh, the cost could be substantially higher than shown throughout much of this report. Uh, if cost reduction measures prove problematic and new legislation scales them back. And that we have a history of that happening where when the shoe begins to pinch, Congress 
you know, ratchets back things that were supposed to be Medicare savings. So, you know, the numbers, it really makes a dramatic effect in the longer term. Um, these, these, these things would make Medicare cost somewhat more expensive in the shorter term, particularly on the Alzheimer's drug. But it's really when you look past around 2045 or so that these long range projections had just become totally unrealistic and doctors and hospitals just wouldn't be getting the kind of compensation that they would require to continue to serve Medicare patients. And that certainly uh, raises all sorts of questions about uh, access. And that's all the time we have for this quick lightning round on the trustees report, but, uh, but tune in to future episodes of Facing the Future because we're certainly going to revisit all of these subjects later on. This is Bob Bixby. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>